Legal Challenges The U.S. Supreme Court unanimously upheld the amendment's validity in Lazé v. Garnet. Maryland citizens Mary D. Randolph, a colored female citizen of 331 West Biddle Street, and Cecilia Street Waters, a white woman, of 824 North Utah Street, applied for and were granted registration as qualified Baltimore voters on October 12, 1920. To have their names removed from the list of qualified voters, Oscar Lazé and others brought suit against the two women on the sole grounds that they were women, arguing that they were not eligible to vote because the Constitution of Maryland limited suffrage to men and the Maryland legislature had refused to vote to ratify the 19th Amendment. Two months before, on August 26, 1920, the federal government had proclaimed the amendment incorporated into the Constitution. Lazé said the amendment destroyed state autonomy because it increased Maryland's electorate without the state's consent. The Supreme Court answered that the 19th Amendment had similar wording to the 15th Amendment, which had expanded state electorates without regard to race for more than 50 years by that time despite rejection by six states, including Maryland. Lazé further argued that the state constitutions in some ratifying states did not allow their legislatures to ratify. The court replied that state ratification was a federal function granted under Article V of the U.S. Constitution and not subject to a state constitution's limitations. Finally, those bringing suit asserted the 19th Amendment was not adopted because Tennessee and West Virginia violated their own rules of procedure. The court ruled that the point was moot because Connecticut and Vermont had subsequently ratified the amendment, providing a sufficient number of state ratifications to adopt the 19th Amendment even without Tennessee and West Virginia. The court also ruled that Tennessee's and West Virginia's certifications of their state ratifications were binding and had been duly authenticated by their respective secretaries of state. As a result of the court's ruling, Randolph and Waters were permitted to become registered voters in Baltimore. Another challenge to the 19th Amendment's adoption was dismissed by the Supreme Court in Fairchild v. Hughes, because the party bringing the suit, Charles S. Fairchild, came from a state that already allowed women to vote and so Fairchild lacked standing. Effects. Women's voting behavior. Adoption of the 19th Amendment enfranchised 26 million American women in time for the 1920 U.S. presidential election. Many legislators feared that a powerful women's bloc would emerge in American politics. This fear led to the passage of such laws as the Shepherd Towner Maternity and Infancy Protection Act of 1921, which expanded maternity care during the 1920s. Newly enfranchised women and women's groups prioritized a reform agenda rather than party loyalty and their first goal was the Shepherd Towner Act. It was the first federal social security law and made a dramatic difference before it was allowed to lapse in 1929. Other efforts at the federal level in the early 1920s that related to women labor and women's citizenship rights included the establishment of a women's bureau in the U.S. Department of Labor in 1920 and passage of the Cable Act in 1922. After the U.S. presidential election in 1924, politicians realized the women's bloc they had feared did not actually exist and they did not need to cater to what they considered as women's issues after all. The eventual appearance of an American women's voting bloc has been tracked to various dates, depending on the source, from the 1950s to 1970s. Around 1980, a nationwide gender gap in voting had emerged, with women usually favoring the Democratic candidate in presidential elections. According to political scientists J. Kevin Corder and Christina Wolbrecht, few women turned out to vote in the first national elections after the 19th Amendment gave them the right to do so. In 1920, 36% of eligible women voted, compared with 68% of men. The low turnout among women was partly due to other barriers to voting such as literacy tests, long residency requirements, and poll taxes. Inexperience with voting and persistent beliefs that voting was inappropriate for women may also have kept turnout low. The participation gap was lowest between men and women in swing states at the time, 
in states that had closer races such as Missouri and Kentucky, and where barriers to voting were lower. By 1960, women were turning out to vote in presidential elections in greater numbers than men and a trend of higher female voting engagement has continued into 2018. Limitations. African American women. African Americans had gained the right to vote, but for 75% of them it was granted in name only, as state constitutions kept them from exercising that right. Prior to the passage of the amendment, Southern politicians held firm in their convictions not to allow African American women to vote. They had to fight to secure not only their own right to vote, but the right of African American men as well. Three million women south of the Mason-Dixon line remained disfranchised after the passage of the amendment. Election officials regularly obstructed access to the ballot box. As newly enfranchised African American women attempted to register, officials increased the use of methods that Brent Staples, in an opinion piece for the New York Times, described as fraud, intimidation, poll taxes, and state violence. In 1926, a group of women attempting to register in Birmingham, Alabama were beaten by officials. Incidents such as this, threats of violence and job losses, and legalized prejudicial practices blocked women of color from voting. These practices continued until the 24th Amendment was adopted in 1962, whereby the states were prohibited from making voting conditional on poll or other taxes, paving the way to more reforms with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. African Americans continued to face barriers preventing them from exercising their vote until the civil rights movement arose in the 1950s and 1960s, which posited voting rights as civil rights. Nearly a thousand civil rights workers converged on the South to support voting rights as part of Freedom Summer, and the 1965 Selma to Montgomery marches brought further participation and support. However, state officials continued to refuse registration until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibited racial discrimination in voting. For the first time, states were forbidden from imposing discriminatory restrictions on voting eligibility, and mechanisms were placed allowing the federal government to enforce its provisions. Other minority groups. Native Americans were granted citizenship by an act of Congress in 1924, but state policies prohibited them from voting. In 1948, a suit brought by World War II veteran Miguel Trujillo resulted in Native Americans gaining the right to vote in New Mexico and Arizona but some states continued to bar them from voting until 1957. Poll taxes and literacy tests kept Latina women from voting. In Puerto Rico, for example, women did not receive the right to vote until 1929, but was limited to literate women until 1935. Further, the 1975 extensions of the Voting Rights Act included requiring bilingual ballots and voting materials in certain regions, making it easier for Latina women to vote. National immigration laws prevented Asians from gaining citizenship until 1952. Other limitations. After adoption of the 19th Amendment, women still faced political limitations. Women had to lobby their state legislators, bring lawsuits, and engage in letter-writing campaigns to earn the right to sit on juries. In California, women won the right to serve on juries four years after passage of the 19th Amendment. In Colorado, it took 33 years. Women continue to face obstacles when running for elective offices, and the Equal Rights Amendment, which would grant women equal rights under the law, has yet to be passed. Legacy. League of Women Voters. In 1920, about six months before the 19th Amendment was ratified, Emma Smith DeVoe and Carrie Chapman Catt agreed to merge the National American Woman Suffrage Association and the National Council of Women Voters to help newly enfranchised women exercise their responsibilities as voters. Originally only women could join the League, but in 1973 the charter was modified to include men. Today, the League of Women Voters operates at the local, state, and national level, 
with over 1,000 local and 50 state leagues, and one territory league in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Some critics and historians question whether creating an organization dedicated to political education rather than political action made sense in the first few years after ratification, suggesting that the League of Women Voters diverted the energy of activists. Equal Rights Amendment Alice Paul and the NWP did not believe the 19th Amendment would be enough to ensure men and women were treated equally, and in 1921 the NWP announced plans to campaign for another amendment which would guarantee equal rights not limited to voting. The first draft of the Equal Rights Amendment, written by Paul and Crystal Eastman and first named the Lucretia Mott Amendment, stated, no political, civil, or legal disabilities or inequalities on account of sex or on account of marriage, unless applying equally to both sexes, shall exist within the United States or any territory subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Senator Charles Curtis brought it to Congress that year, but it did not make it to the floor for a vote. It was introduced in every congressional session from 1921 to 1971, usually not making it out of committee. The amendment did not have the full support of women's rights activists, and was opposed by CARICAT and the League of Women Voters. Whereas the NWP believed in total equality, even if that meant sacrificing benefits given to women through protective legislation, some groups like the Women's Joint Congressional Committee and the Women's Bureau believe the loss of benefits relating to safety regulations, working conditions, lunch breaks, maternity provisions, and other labor protections would outweigh what would be gained. Labor leaders like Alice Hamilton and Mary Anderson argued that it would set their efforts back and make sacrifices of what progress they had made. In response to these concerns, a provision known as the Hayden Rider was added to the ERA to retain special labor protections for women, and passed the Senate in 1950 and 1953, but failed in the House. In 1958, President Eisenhower called on Congress to pass the amendment, but the Hayden Rider was controversial, meeting with opposition from the NWP and others who felt it undermined its original purpose. The growing, productive women's movements of the 1960s and 1970s renewed support for the amendment. U.S. Representative Martha Griffiths of Michigan reintroduced it in 1971, leading to its approval by the House of Representatives that year. After it passed in the Senate on March 22, 1972, it went to state legislatures for ratification. Congress originally set a deadline of March 22, 1979, by which point at least 38 states needed to ratify the amendment. It reached 35 by 1977, with broad bipartisan support including both major political parties and Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter. However, when Phyllis Schlafly mobilized conservative women in opposition, four states rescinded their ratification, although whether a state may do so is disputed. The amendment did not reach the necessary 38 states by the deadline. President Carter signed a controversial extension of the deadline to 1982, but that time saw no additional ratifications. In the 1990s, ERA supporters resumed efforts for ratification, arguing that the pre-deadline ratification still applied, that the deadline itself can be lifted, and that only three states were needed. Whether the amendment is still before the states for ratification remains disputed, but in 2014 both Virginia and Illinois state senators voted to ratify, although both were blocked in the House chambers. In 2017, 45 years after the amendment was originally submitted to states, the Nevada legislature became the first to ratify it following expiration of the deadlines. Illinois lawmakers followed in 2018. Another attempt in Virginia passed the Assembly but was defeated on the state Senate floor by one vote. The most recent effort to remove the deadline was in early 2019, with proposed legislation from Jackie Spire, accumulating 188 co-sponsors and pending in Congress as of August 2019. Commemorations a seven-and-a-half-ton marble slab from a Carrera, Italy, quarry carved into statue called the Portrait Monument, originally known as the Women's Movement, 
by sculptor Adelaide Johnson was unveiled at the Capitol Rotunda on February 15, 1921, six months after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, on the 101st anniversary of Susan B. Anthony's birth, and during the National Woman's Party's first post-ratification National Convention in Washington, D.C. The party presented it as a gift from the women of the U.S. The monument is installed in the Capitol Rotunda and features busts of Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Lucretia Mott. More than 50 women's groups with delegates from every state were represented at the dedication ceremony in 1921 that was presided over by Jane Addams. After the ceremony, the statue was moved temporarily to the Capitol crypt, where it stood for less than a month until Johnson discovered that an inscription stenciled in gold lettering on the back of the monument had been removed. The inscription read, in part, woman, first denied a soul, then called mindless, now arisen declares herself an entity to be reckoned. Spiritually, the woman movement, represents the emancipation of womanhood. The release of the feminine principle in humanity, the moral integration of human evolution comes to rescue torn and struggling humanity from its savage self. Congress denied passage of several bills to move the statue, whose place in the crypt also held brooms and mops. In 1963, the crypt was cleaned for an exhibition of several statues including this one, which had been dubbed the women in the bathtub. In 1995 on the 75th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, women's groups renewed legislative interest in the monument and on May 14, 1997, the statue was finally returned to the rotunda. On August 26, 2016, a monument commemorating Tennessee's role in providing the required 36th state ratification of the 19th Amendment was unveiled in Centennial Park in Nashville, Tennessee. The memorial, erected by the Tennessee Suffrage Monument Incorporated and created by Alan LaQuire, features likenesses of suffragists who were particularly involved in securing Tennessee's ratification, Carrie Chapman Catt, Ann Dallas Dudley, Abby Crawford Milton, Juno Frankie Pierce, and Sue Shelton White. In June 2018, the city of Knoxville, Tennessee, unveiled another sculpture by LaQuire, this one depicting 24-year-old freshman state representative Harry T. Byrne and his mother. Representative Byrne, at the urging of his mother, cast the deciding vote on August 18, 1920, making Tennessee the final state needed for the ratification of the 19th Amendment. In 2018, Utah launched a campaign called Better Days 2020 to popularize Utah women's history. One of its first projects was the unveiling of the Salt Lake City Capitol steps of the design for a license plate in recognition of women's suffrage. The commemorative license plate would be available for new or existing car registrations in the state. The year 2020 marks the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment, as well as the 150th anniversary of the first women voting in Utah, which was the first state in the nation where women cast a ballot. An annual celebration of the passage of the 19th Amendment, known as Women's Equality Day, began on August 26, 1973. There usually is heightened attention and news media coverage during momentous anniversaries such as the 75th, 1995, and 100th, 2020, as well as in 2016 because of the presidential election. For the amendment's centennial, several organizations announced large events or exhibits, including the National Constitution Center and National Archives and Records Administration. On the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, President Donald Trump posthumously pardoned Susan B. Anthony. Popular Culture The 19th Amendment has been featured in a number of songs, films, and television programs. The 1976 song Suffer Until Suffrage from Schoolhouse Rock, performed by Esra Mohawk and written by Bob Doro and Tom Yohei, states, in part, not a woman here could vote, no matter what age, then the 19th Amendment struck down that restrictive rule, yes, the 19th Amendment struck down that restrictive rule. In 2018, various recording artists released an album called 27, the most perfect album, 
featuring songs inspired by the 27 Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Dolly Parton's song inspired by the 19th Amendment is called A Woman's Right. One Woman, One Vote is a 1995 PBS documentary narrated by actor Susan Sarandon chronicling the Seneca Falls Convention through the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Another documentary was released in 1999 by filmmaker Ken Burns, Not For Ourselves Alone, the story of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. It used archival footage and commentary by actors and Dowd, Julie Harris, Sally Kellerman, and Amy Madigan. In 2013, John Green, the best-selling author of The Fault in Our Stars, produced a video entitled Women in the 19th Century, Crash Course U.S. History No. 31, providing an overview of the women's movement leading to the 19th Amendment. The 2004 drama Iron Jawed Angels depicts suffragists Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, played by actors Hilary Swank and Frances O'Connor, respectively, as they help secure the 19th Amendment. In August 2018, former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Academy Award-winning director-slash-producer Steven Spielberg announced plans to make a television series based on Elaine Weiss's best-selling book, The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.